Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm your host, Dr. Aliza Pressman. And today I'm so thrilled to be talking with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. I have only just begun my mindfulness journey in the last couple of years and having my own practice. She has golden nuggets that you can take with you that really can change how you are experiencing your day and responding to your children and yourself. So we're going to talk about mindful discipline and also the kinds of things that we can do again in our day-to-day to change our own sense of calm and presence. And she's a scientist, so she's coming at this not just kind of from a woo-woo perspective, but truly trained. And yes, she has trained in Nepal and Thailand and really can make your experience of meditation pretty extraordinary. But she's also a professor and a a researcher and has looked at how mindfulness can rewire your brain. So let's talk to Shauna and don't forget to stick around because I have great questions from you guys from your DMs and I love it. So that segment's coming up after a very calming conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Can you clarify what mindfulness is for everyone? Mindfulness, the word actually means to see clearly. So a lot of people think mindfulness is about relaxation or stress management or enlightenment. But really the word mindfulness means to see things clearly so we can respond effectively. And for parents, that's that's really the key is how do we see things clearly in the present moment so we can respond with wisdom and compassion. And there's three core elements of mindfulness. Okay. It's my professor side coming out. I (laughs) I have a model. (laughs) So there's intention, Mm -hmm. which is just why are you paying attention? What's important to you? Attention, which is focusing your attention in the present moment. And then your attitude, which is how you pay attention. Paying attention with kindness, with curiosity, with openness. And so these three elements kind of arise in the present moment and let us see things clearly, again, so we can respond effectively. So what I'd like to do maybe is to start with a practice to get everyone all in the same place. I would love that for me. <laughs> and uh, we'll just go through those three core elements of mindfulness. So first, we'll start with our intention. So you can let your eyes close and just let your body soften a little bit. You don't have to get into any special position for meditation. Maybe have your back straight and upright. 
And then just take a moment to reflect on your intention, which is why are you here? What's important? What's calling you to mindfulness and to mindful parenting at this time? You might feel like you want more ease with your children, more peace in your own life, more joy. So just letting your intention be a guide, kind of setting the compass of your heart. And then as you're ready, the second element is just focusing our attention. So begin to gather your attention right here in the present moment, which means we let go of thoughts about the future and what needs to get done. We let go of past and what we should have done. And we just let ourselves, just for these few moments, rest in the present moment. So maybe noticing your breath. It's a wonderful way to come into the present moment. Noticing your body, maybe relax the body 5% more, soften the jaw, soften the eyes, gathering our attention. And then third is our attitude. So paying attention with kindness, curiosity, compassion. So maybe by now you've noticed your mind has wandered. When you bring it back, you bring it back with kindness. There's no judgment. There's no shame. Mindfulness is about paying attention with kindness. So just taking one more moment to feel your body, feel your breath. Maybe bring 5% more kindness, more curiosity to this moment. Then as you're ready, taking a deeper breath in and out. You can let your eyes open. Maybe just stretch your arms above your head and move your body. So that's that's mm. it. That's mindfulness. <sighs> so, Shauna, how can you use that? Can you give me a story about how you could use that, those three parts of mindfulness? By the way, I am so at peace right now. <laughs> um, Shauna's guided mindfulness is incredible, mm. by the way. Thank you. I've had the <laughs> the privilege to experience. Um, so how could you take those three parts of mindfulness and use it to inform a moment in your parenting? Mm, yeah. Well, I, um, I have a, a story about that that I like to share because it was such a small thing, but also such a big impact. Some years ago when my son was about nine years old, I was away teaching in Europe, and I was gone for two weeks, and it was the longest we'd been apart. And as I was flying home from Copenhagen, I remember distinctly having this moment where I was like, oh, my God, I've been gone too long. I've ruined our attachment bond. I've, you know, I'm a bad mom. I chose work over my son. Just started shaming myself. And then I remembered that, you know, shame doesn't work and not to judge myself. And so instead, I set a really clear intention. When I get home, all I want to do is connect with Jackson, my son. And so I set this intention, and I got home. It was a beautiful day. We live in California, and he and I love going to the beach. So I said, hey, Jackson, you want to go to the beach today? And he said, sure. So I start packing up the perfect foods for a picnic and all his favorite beach gear and just want it to be the perfect day for us to reconnect. And I'm out at the car, and I'm packing up the car, and I'm waving to the neighbors like, see, I'm home. I'm a good mm-hmm. mom. You know, it's not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> So I go back inside. I'm like, all right, Jackson, you ready to go? He's like, nah, I don't feel like it. I'm like, what? We're, we're going to go to the beach and I'm going to show you how much I love you. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
My perfect day. <laughs> right. My perfect day. Perfect mom. Right. Check. And so he kind of puts on a swimsuit and he begrudgingly walks out the door and I'm already at the car. I want to get to the beach in time for a perfect picnic in the sunlight. And I look back and he's sitting on our front porch <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Jackson, let's go. And I notice a little bit of impatience and kind of I'm on an agenda. Mm-hmm. And then luckily I was paying attention. You know, I'd been practicing mindfulness every day in Europe and I remembered my intention. What's the most important thing? All I want to do is connect with my son. I don't care if we go to the beach. I don't care what time we get there. I just want him to know I love you. I'm home. You're safe. So I walk back over and I sit down next to him and he's watching these ants. And I sit there for a couple of minutes and it's actually kind of interesting. You know, the ants are kind of extraordinary and we're sitting there. And then all of a sudden his little body begins to soften and I feel his shoulder lean into my shoulder, sun on our backs. And that was it. That was the most important thing. But we forget. We forget so easily. Mm-hmm. So part of mindfulness is just waking us up to that moment where we remember what's the most important thing. If we're judging ourselves, if we're criticizing, if I'm like, God, I can't believe what a bad mom I am, I forget right. what's truly important. You're not there. I'm not there. And so one of my favorite kind of pith quotes, it says, the most important thing is simply to remember the most important thing. <laughs> That's it. It's all you got to do. I love that. The most important thing is simply to remember the most important thing. Yeah. So to just take a moment to think about what your intention is when you're with your children can change the energy between you. And tell me a little bit about the benefits of mindfulness for the people listening who kind of have heard about mindfulness, but maybe think it's a little bit woo-woo. <laughs> Uh, you're my perfect audience. You're my target audience. Those of you that think it's woo-woo. Because I've spent 20 years as a scientist really dedicating myself to rigorously studying the impact of mindfulness. And so what I can share, which is based on science, is that mindfulness has profound impact in a lot of different ways for our children. First, just on a basic cognitive level, it improves memory, learning, attention. It improves um, depression, anxiety, and kind of impulse control. And for me, what's most important is it improves the relationship between parents and children. It allows more intimacy, more joy, more honesty, more trust. They recently did a study showing that children um, who had been mindfully parented, people who went through a a mindful parenting intervention, um, they had less absences from school, better GPA, less um, less drug use, less alcohol use, less teen pregnancy. I mean, the list was pretty staggering. So there are so many different benefits. But the reason I teach mindfulness to parents isn't necessarily just for the children. It's really for the parents themselves. Because what I found in my own life is it makes me kinder, more compassionate. And most importantly, it makes me happier. It makes me love my son more, better able to connect with him and be a better mom. It's hard. Parenting's hard. No one talks about how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And I think what we tend to do is we beat ourselves up. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it right. Everyone's doing it better. Mm -hmm. And yet everyone's saying that to themselves. Everyone. (laughs) Right? We're never good enough. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned from the research is that when we beat ourselves up, when we shame ourselves, the parts of the brain that have to do with learning shut down. So we lock ourselves into the very bad behaviors. I don't want to call them bad, but unskillful Mm -hmm. behaviors that we're engaged in. We end up repeating them over and over again. Paradoxically, when we're kind and compassionate with ourselves and we're like, ooh, sweetheart, that didn't go well. 
um, it gives us the space to kind of learn and redirect. I love you're saying, oh, sweetheart, to myself. To yourself. Yeah. I just want to make sure that <laughs> oh, yeah. that was clear to everybody because it's wonderful. Right. So can you just, because you said something very important about how, what happens to your brain where the parts of your brain that would be able to take in what's New going information, on and what you need behavior to learn, change. Yeah. All of those resources are going to another place, another exactly. part of your brain. So I just wanted to expand on that a little bit so that everybody really understands that that's true for both parents and kids in those moments of tension. Yeah. Thank you for pausing us on this because this is such an important point. So when we feel judged and ashamed either by ourselves Mm -hmm. or for children by their teachers, their parents, each other, the part of the brain that has to do with learning, growth, new behaviors shuts down and our, all of our resources are shuttled to survival pathways, right? We're in fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go into fight or flight. And what's really interesting is that when we treat ourselves with kindness and compassion, when we feel safe and protected, either in our own, for ourselves or by our parents, it releases dopamine, which turns on the learning centers of the brain and allows us to learn. So whether we're trying to be a better parent or we're trying to teach our child something, shame doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It can't work. And shame becomes sometimes a a default setting when you're frustrated with yourself even. What I would say is, so I agree with you, our default often is shame and self-judgment because we have this mistaken belief that that's going to help us improve. That's going to help us do better. Mm. And so if we make a mistake, we we beat ourselves up. If our child makes a mistake, we're like, why'd you do that? Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is rewire these pathways and say, Shame doesn't work, and actually kindness and compassion will help you change. And it's interesting because I remember another situation with my son. Um, We've had many, but (laughs) I remember I was coming home from another conference, and I was teaching with Tara Brock, and she had said something really interesting. She said, it's not your fault, but you're responsible. It's not your fault, but But you're you're responsible. responsible. And That's great. I remember I wrote it down on a little yellow sticky mm. and I got home and I put the sticky on the refrigerator and because I'd been gone, I decided to make my son's favorite dinner. I made him pasta, which I'm gluten-free. I don't even like. So I was, you know, I was trying to be a good mom, make him what he wanted. <laughs> and I worked really hard at it and I put it on the table and it was, it was pretty soon after his father and I had been divorced and his dad's this gourmet, amazing chef and I'm not. So I put it on the table and Jackson takes one bite and he's like, this is terrible and just tosses it just on the ground. I mean, which he never does something like that. And I get so mad. You know, I'm tired. I just flown in. I get so mad. I say, you go to your room right now. Like, you don't get dinner. He slams, goes to his room. So I'm in the kitchen, and I'm starting to really beat myself up. You're a terrible mom. You're you're off speaking about compassion and mindfulness. You come home, and you snap at your kid, and you send him without dinner. Like, what kind of mom are you? And and you've been, you know, and you've done a terrible job raising him because what kind of kid is he to throw <laughs> stuff on there? You know, I'm just in this kind yeah. of pit of judgment. And then I see the little yellow sticky on the refrigerator, and it says, it's not your fault, but you're responsible. And what that did is it opened up compassion. I was like, it's not my fault. I snapped at him. I've had a long day. I really wanted this to be a sweet night, and and I felt, you know, it was hard for me, but I'm responsible. And if I sit here beating myself up, I'm not going to be in his room repairing. Mm. And it's not his fault, but he's responsible. It's not his fault. He's having a hard time with the divorce and he's, you know, he's struggling, but he also needs to take responsibility. And so with that kind of clarity, 
right? Mindfulness means to see clearly. I was able to go to his room and first own my responsibility and then help him own his so we could repair it. So what kind of thing could you say in that moment? So beginning first, I think, with calming my own energy down, Mm -hmm. you really have to have clean energy when you speak as a parent because our children are like animals and they (laughs) smell you and they know. (laughs) You know, you could say the right words, but if you're not feeling truly compassionate and and settled, they feel it. So for sure, I think the first thing is really to settle yourself and then to really own your part. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have yelled. You definitely can eat dinner. I'm not going to starve you tonight because you did that. And please forgive me. And and then once that was healed to say, and, you know, is there anything that you feel responsible for that you would want to do differently? And naturally, easily, they want to be good. They have these good hearts. Mm -hmm. They want you to be proud of them. You know, I'm sorry for throwing the pasta on the ground and, and I love you and, you know, we'll help clean it up together. And it, it was, it was one of those situations where it could have turned really sour, really fast. And unfortunately, I probably have had some of those too. Right. Of but it was one of those moments where that teaching just, it just stopped me in my tracks. That's a great, those, any of those short teachings are so helpful because you just, it just takes that one moment and it mm. actually brings you back to your intention Exactly. And you can move forward. I'm on shrooms. Not what you're thinking. I'm talking about the legal kind. But these mushrooms are still magic. Everyday magic, you might say. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that makes shrooms and adaptogens with coffee, cacao, latte, protein powder, and edible skincare. Did you know that 64% of Americans drink coffee daily? I am one of those Americans. could be drinking Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee. It's actually more than just coffee because it contains lion's mane, which is a functional mushroom. And it's a brain's best friend because it supposedly supports focus, productivity, and creativity. And also, just as a fun fact, the lion's mushrooms have long been used by Buddhist monks to help them focus during meditation. Plus, it includes chaga, the king of mushrooms. Chaga supports your immune system with antioxidant properties. While these mushrooms don't contain psilocybin, they will help you think. You're probably wondering if this coffee tastes like mushrooms, because I certainly was. And then I tried every flavor, and not a single one tasted like any mushrooms at all. It actually tastes just like regular coffee or chai or cacao mix, which is one of the flavors, and not at all like mushrooms. It's made with 100% organic coffee beans. It has no sugar or carbs or calories. It's vegan, paleo, sugar-free, dairy-free. For me, mushroom coffee is easier to have lots of and not feel totally awful and jittery. It comes in easy-to-use packets that you can just take anywhere, stash them in your bag or your suitcase. And of course, we have a special offer for the Raising Good Humans audience. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash humans or enter the code humans at the checkout. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash humans to receive 15% off your order. 
I have one more of those teachings, oh, actually. Great. One more. So these are you're the getting best. all my best ones. So what you practice grows stronger. Oh, it's my favorite That's, of yours. I've, it's I, my favorite. I say it all the time. <laughs> what you practice grows stronger. Tell that story, please. Okay. Because <laughs> I so, think it's such a helpful sentence. What you practice grows stronger, no matter what you're practicing, right? Right. And you're practicing all the time. So I learned this from a monk in Thailand. Um, I had gone to Thailand when I was about 20 to study meditation, but I really didn't know anything about meditation except that I was going to be really good at it and reach (laughs) enlightenment really fast. So I get to this monastery and the monks didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Thai. So we're kind of in really rough English communicating. And I kind of understood I was supposed to feel my breath going in and out of my nose as a way to train my attention. And that mindfulness was really just about being present. It was just, that was all it was about. So I sit down and meditate and I start focusing on my breath and, you know, my mind wanders off. And so I bring it back. It wanders again. It's getting lost in the future and sucked into the past. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't stay present. I started getting really frustrated with myself. Like, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You're terrible at this. Why are you even here? You're a fake. Because I had some idea that mindfulness was supposed to be easy and that we're supposed to be present. And I'm curious for the listeners, you know, I've been talking, what, maybe 15, 10 minutes now. How many of you have noticed that your mind has wandered? In fact, everyone. Uh, A study from Harvard shows that the mind wanders on average 47% of the time. So that's about half of your life you're missing. You're not even here. So part of this practice, as I said, is about being present. And yet that's hard, right? It's about training the mind to be present. And so when the mind wanders off, the key is not to beat ourselves up. The key is to bring ourselves back with kindness. But I didn't know that. So I'm sitting there. I'm judging myself. I'm like, you're terrible. And this monk arrives who spoke English. And I asked, you know, can I talk to him about how hard this is? And as I explained to him all my judgment, my impatience, my frustration, he looked at me and he said, oh, dear, you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing judgment, impatience, Mm. and frustration. And then he said, what you practice grows stronger. If you're practicing mindfulness with a judgmental, harsh attitude, all you're doing is growing neural pathways of judgment. Mm -hmm. The key, he said, is to practice mindfulness with kindness. He said it's like these loving arms that welcome everything, even your judgmental thoughts, even your spiteful, jealous thoughts. You're like, oh, sweetheart, that was a little bit jealous. Or that was, you know, it's it's this kind of, it's not, it's almost like grandmother love, you know, mm-hmm. the best grandmother who she just, whatever happened, she's like, that's okay. And that really shifted my practice. I love that. The idea that what you practice grows stronger, including practicing mindfulness in a judgmental way, that you get so good at that, that you become incredibly skilled in this way that you've been completely trying to avoid. Exactly. Um, so. and, I, and I think the, the real part of, of what you practice grows stronger, the, the, for me, the reason it's so powerful is neuroplasticity shows that exactly, that our repeated thoughts, behaviors, experiences mm-hmm. shape our brain. Every single thought we have has a signature in our brain. And so if I'm practicing mindfulness and I think I'm being like healthy and good, but I'm sitting there saying, oh, you're, you're so bad at this, you're terrible, you're such a bad mom— All I'm doing is practicing those signatures in my brain. And so for me, what the the shift was, A, how I practice mindfulness has to be with kindness, but B, you're practicing all the time. Right. Not just when you're meditating, 
when you're driving, when mm-hmm. you're talking to your child, when you're eating. Mm-hmm. And so it really opened up this idea that mindfulness is not just about meditation. It's a way of living where we're practicing all the time. Can I be kind? Can I be present? Can I be open, intentional, moment by moment? Well, now I sort of feel like I want to get into some practices that you could include your child in mm. just to plant seeds, to invite them into this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of it is just, you know, as we make those efforts that grows in our children too. But are there specific practices that are doable for busy parents? Absolutely. So I think the first thing you said, though, is the most important, is that as we model this way of being, it that's how children learn. They learn through play. They learn through modeling. We can tell them things, but if we're not being mm-hmm. um, aligned with those things, they tend not to learn them. Mm-hmm. So most of my work clinically and research has focused on the parents and what we can do as parents. Um, so I can start with that. And then in terms of practices for children, I can give you a couple, but there's an amazing woman named Susan Kaiser Greenland. Oh, yes. She's I love her work. in Los Angeles at UCLA, and she's written a number of books, and they have incredible practices, mm-hmm. really detailed, specifically for children. In terms of practices parents can do, the first and most important thing is just to take care of yourself. And I think that's the hardest thing for parents to understand, is that by caring for ourselves, we care for our children. Mm. And so often I hear parents saying, well, it's selfish, or I don't have time, or I already have such limited time with them. I need to spend every last second. And it's really about quality, not quantity. That's what all the research demonstrates. And the harm that you do when you're not in a good place by just trying to like put in the hours with Mm -hmm. your children is hard to undo. So the first step is really to um, develop self-care routines. If meditation and mindfulness are your thing, wonderful. There's lots of resources, but if they're not finding time to, you know, for me, one of the things was just to pause before I'd pick Jackson up from school. You know, I'd have a busy work day. I'd be on the phone. I'd be like, you know, completely consumed. And if I just walked right in, our connection wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And so even if I took two minutes to breathe, reflect on my intention, Mm -hmm. now I'm picking up my son, um, focus my attention on my breath, on my body, bring this kind, curious attitude. I wonder how it's going to be today. It takes two minutes. It can even take 30 seconds, but it shifts my consciousness. Um, So that's that's one. And doing these transitions. The other one that I think is really important is beginning each day and ending each day with time and connection. So for me, we have a ritual in my house of, as, as you well know, it's the title of my new book, but good morning, I love you. And I begin each day by saying it to myself, which, you know, people find kind of strange that, <laughs> well, when you run in and say it to your child, but I start with myself to really anchor in that sense of self-care and presence mm-hmm. with myself because I have my own child I need to take care of. Otherwise, she gets reactive and she's not a great mom. Mm-hmm. And then going in and saying it to Jackson, but also teaching Jackson how to say it to himself yes, and teaching children, just placing your hand on your heart releases oxytocin. It's good for you. That this paradigm of self-kindness mm-hmm. is so foreign to adults and children, right? It's And yet, when I think about what I most want for my son, what I most want for him in the entire world is that he loves himself, that he trusts himself, that he's good to himself, because that everything else will follow out of mm-hmm. that. So I 
have been doing that practice because it was the easiest one to do. <laughs> Even start, though it felt, start easy. It felt so <laughs> silly. Mm-hmm. And I brought my kids into it and they made fun of me, but did it in this sweet way where they knew that they were doing it to please me, but they were just saying it, but it became a ritual in our house mm. and they love it. And I love it because it feels really good. It does. And it's something that connects us every single morning. Right. And it's something that a nine-year-old can do and a 12-year-old can do and, and a two-year-old can do. And a two-year-old and a three-year-old. I and mean, it's what a I've, sweet. It's a sweet practice and it's a powerful practice. Mm-hmm. That's what's been so shocking to me because in my own life, it was really healing and powerful. And it took a while for me to actually do it because I thought like you, it was a little hokey. But what's been amazing is as I've been teaching it more and, you know, through my TED Talk, teaching it to over a million people now, the emails and the the videos I get from these children, you know, that they, they'll, so they'll send these amazing. things and they'll say, you know, they'll put their hand on their heart. They'll shut their eyes and say, good morning. I love you, James, to themselves. And then they'll open their eyes, like peek them open and be like, good morning. I love you too. Oh. And, you know, and I just imagine all the ripple effects. That's right. Of starting your day with. This kindness, even if you've, you know, even if they giggle or even if they think it's hokey. And for me, when I'm away from Jackson or I'm away from my loved ones, I just send it to them. And it's like this beautiful, I wake up in the morning and all of a sudden I have this circle of love around me because I'm thinking of everyone I love. Mm -hmm. And the ripple effect that you're talking about and and the the thought that you've prioritized that. So your children see whether or not they do it because they think it's cute or funny, or they're just doing it to please you, or they don't care, or they love it, and it feels so wonderful, it doesn't even matter, but that from a young age or however, whenever you start it, that that's your priority. You've prioritized this self-care for them and for yourself. Right. I mean, because usually, you know, the alarm goes off, you jump out of bed, you're getting ready for school. Yeah. And it's like, just to pause for those 20 seconds and to feel your own body and to send love to yourself and love to your mom or dad or brother or sister. Mm -hmm. It's very sweet. Even I've had little kids do it with their stuffed animal and they say, you know, good morning to their teddy bear. That's Um, great. That's great. Well, I always think if your message is that you're you're meant to be perfect, what a burden that is for your kids anyway. It's such a good point. And I think That has a lot to do, you know, in the book, Mindful Discipline, we talk about these kind of five key elements to mindful parenting. And the fifth one is about mistakes and really modeling for our children that it's okay to mess up. And it just means you can try again, that mistakes are really learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. They're not bad. And for me, that's been really important because I think I tend to hold myself to this kind of standard of perfection. And then I'm modeling that to my son. And that's a huge burden for our children to carry. So you can almost think of yourself as giving your children a gift when you make those mistakes. Exactly. I say, see what a great job I just did of parenting. I'm modeling how to make mistakes and recover. I've often said to my children, I am, I know you think I'm perfect, but I'm, I too make mistakes. And they're like, yeah, we know we've, we got that memo. So you mentioned the five essential elements to Mindful Discipline, and we won't have time today to get into all of that, although I highly recommend this book because I I really do think what's so interesting about this approach is that, and you actually talk about this in the book, there are discipline approaches that are adult-centered, child-centered, and this is relationship-centered. And that is 
what builds resilience. So it's a really wonderful way to think about it. And and I have to say, you know, the reason I wrote the book, and it is a little bit radical in its approach, is because I was struggling so much with my son, so much after the divorce. And I went to my pediatrician and I said, I'm going to kill him. Like, help <laughs> me, you know? And so we started working together on um, how to discipline because, you know, my ex-husband had been the disciplinarian mm-hmm. and I had been the sweet mommy. And all of a sudden I had to get him up for school and I had to feed him and I had to get him to take a bath. And he was like, no, like you're not the person that tells me what to do. Mm-hmm. And so what my pediatrician taught me, who's the co-author of the book, is there has to be this loving hierarchy where the parent is the parent with total love and respect for the child, but you are the one who's making choices um, while still acknowledging and, and respecting them. And I think so often there's this kind of really kind of harsh parent who dictates everything or overly permissive and says, That's well, right. I, honey, what do you want to do and what do you want to eat? And it's it actually is frightening for a child who isn't fully developed. It's very confusing for parents when, so for example, the first element of mindful discipline is unconditional love. Mm. Sometimes what happens is, we hear unconditional love and boundaries seem conditional, but exactly. they're not. Exactly. And that's that's the key. I, for me, that was the key is that I could love my son unconditionally and have laser-like boundaries, just so clear, and, and let him know this is out of love. Mm-hmm. And I think the key to this first element, which is unconditional love, is letting your child know there's nothing you can do that would take my love away and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to guide you and redirect mm-hmm. you, but that's out of love. And I love that you say and, not a, no buts, I've noticed. No buts. <laughs> and. Um, so the second element is space for children to be themselves. Mm-hmm. That's another really important piece is to let your child know you trust them enough to give them the space to be themselves and to make their own decisions. And it might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but it's about finding these very, very um, delineated Mm -hmm. times. So let's say you're going for a hike and you say, how about you lead for the next 20 minutes? Mm -hmm. So you're not saying which hike should we do and how far should we go? There's still boundaries. There's boundaries. But you're giving them space to have some agency. To have some agency, absolutely. And then it grows with age. Mm -hmm. Until they fly. (laughs) At age 55. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually sometimes, whenever I'm talking about anything to do with parents and kind of until this magical day when they're, um, you know, fully... Independent, independent, autonomous... My both my parents laugh at me. Right, <laughs> I just left my parents' um, house. That's why I say that. <laughs> um, so I, I, I mean, I wonder if we can go through just yeah. Let's just go through all of them very Take quickly. A mentorship. I so love third mentorship. element is mentorship, and as I mentioned earlier, our children learn through modeling, and so mentorship really helps us kind of guide them, facilitate things. Again, without telling them exactly what to do, but helping be a partner Mm -hmm. in things. And it's so beautiful to watch a good mentor because they incorporate all the different elements. They have unconditional love. Mm -hmm. They give them space to be autonomous. And they model the key kind of things that you want to be teaching. Healthy boundaries, we we touched on a, a bit. I think it's worth acknowledging again because it does feel 
very difficult to establish boundaries while also promoting autonomy and giving unconditional love. That's a big balancing act. It is very challenging. And I think especially for certain personalities of parents, it's even more challenging because we don't like conflict. We don't like to say no. Mm-hmm. And somehow when we do finally say no, it's out of anger. Mm-hmm. It's like, you, you've pushed me so hard. No. And for me, the biggest thing about healthy boundaries is saying no out of love. And when I'm completely calm, where it's like, no, you're going to brush your teeth and you're going to go to bed and I love you so much and I can't wait. <laughs> Instead of you've pushed me so hard mm-hmm. and you've asked for five more minutes, seven times. That's it. I've had it. Right. So the, the healthy boundaries is both setting healthy boundaries for your child, but also doing it in a healthy way. So when you're doing it in a healthy way, it's intentional. Yes. And with that. You're present and you're kind. I mean, it's doing it mindfully. Even if it's something that they don't want to hear and mm-hmm. they might not respond well to. Um, I'm wondering how to explain healthy boundaries. I guess to me, one way to look at it would be we're not trying to give boundaries to their emotional experience. We're trying to give boundaries to their behavioral experience. Yeah. That's I'm not really, sure if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think you want to create a lot of space for emotional experience um, but really shape the behavioral so that you can feel as angry as you right. want, but we need to know how to contain But them. you can't beat someone up. Right. And then the last was mistakes, which is where we which began. Which we began. For parents to develop these practices themselves. And for parents to develop these practices themselves, I highly recommend, I'm very excited for Good Morning, I Love You. So that's coming out in January, but it can be pre-ordered on Amazon. I can be pre-ordered right now on Amazon. (laughs) And and really the book, the intention of the book was to take all the science and make it really simple and digestible. And more importantly, to have practices. So every chapter has a practice that parents can do, that people can do to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate wisdom, compassion, and also joy. I think joy is kind of undervalued in our culture. It sure is. And especially in parenting, Mm -hmm. it can be joyful. It, it doesn't just One of my primary intentions, I said, with this podcast was to remember for myself as well that joy is a huge part of this because it's... Absolutely. And it's good morning, I love you. Mindfulness and self-compassion practices to rewire your brain for greater calm, clarity, and joy. Wonderful. Can you leave us with one parting thought? Mm. What I think is actually most important is for each person listening to have one one parting thought, or I call them one gold nugget that you can take with you. Because at some level, you already know everything I'm sharing. This wisdom is inside of each of us, and we're all just reminding each other. So take a moment, let your eyes close, and just reflect on what was one thing, one word, one phrase that you want to remember from this conversation. It could be what you practice grows stronger or shame doesn't work or the most important thing is to remember the most important thing or maybe just to be kind. So whatever it is for you, just finding that word or phrase and maybe just put your hand on your heart. Really let this anchor into your long-term memory and just feeling gratitude for yourself for taking the time feeling your own pure intention to be a better parent. You can really feel the goodness and purity of heart. And then taking a deeper breath in and out, 
silently repeating your gold nugget. Good. You can let your eyes open. Thank you so much. Heaven. For my closing notes and Q&A, I just want to tell you to make sure to get a copy of Shauna's book on Amazon pre-order. Good morning, I love you. Mindfulness and self-compassion practices to rewire your brain for calm, clarity, and joy. And we were talking about someone named Susan Kaiser Greenland, who is a fantastic um, practitioner who has tapped into fun, engaging, short, manageable activities for kids. And you can also look forward to an episode with her coming up in a few weeks. So I got a lot of questions from you guys on my at Raising Good Humans podcast Instagram. I can't answer all of them today, but I am going to answer a few and I will keep doing this. So keep them coming. The first question is, I'm an educator and parent of a 10-year-old girl and six-year-old boy. Lately, it's come to my attention that my daughter cares so much about what her peers think of her. As much as I think this is typical, it concerns me as her father and I are not like that. Any advice? Thank you. Sometimes, even when you're an educator, just like for me, even though I'm a psychologist, when it comes to my own children, there are moments when I just need that objective voice to remind me not to have an emotional response. And I completely understand when you think, well, we don't sit around worrying what other people think and paying attention to how someone might think of our clothes or what we're doing or what we're saying. Why is our 10-year-old doing that? So I just want to remind you, because you're emotionally invested, that most of what bothers us about these things about our kids is related to the story that we're telling ourselves about, what it means for who they're going to become and how it reflects on us. And if you can step back and remember that developmentally, a 10-year-old almost has to think about what her peers are thinking of her. It's adaptive. It's how she's going to survive and thrive in her social life. And it's just a matter of not lecturing her, but modeling for her, as you have been, that your world doesn't exist to please other people or to do things to make other people prove of you. And she will carry that, not today necessarily, but over time in the long term. You might notice when she does it, mention it in a non judgmental way. It sounds like you're struggling with what to wear because you aren't sure what your friends will think. Now, I'm just using that as an example. I have no idea what she was talking about. Um, But if you do that, there's no judgment in my voice, right? It's just a statement. I'm just making an observation. And then you can say, do you want my help? Is there anything that I can do? Or you don't have to say anything at all. You can just listen and watch her kind of go through this, help her talk her through what she's worried about if she's interested in engaging. So if she says, well, so-and-so will think X, Y, or Z, then you can say, well, tell me what that might look like or what that might sound like. Just be sure that you don't catch yourself lecturing her on how she's supposed to feel. Because remember, you cannot control how your daughter feels, which means you can't control that she cares what other people think. You can only 
get her to pretend to you that she doesn't care what other people think just to get you off her back or to get you to stop lecturing. So the tween time is really a time to observe with no judgment so that you can then help reflect back some of the things you're seeing and help them come to their own decisions while you model and guide them with your normal, wonderful ethics and values, and she'll come out great. My question is about my three-and-a-half-year-old son. He's sweet, he's smart, hilarious, and ornery. We've been struggling with his reactions to frustration, disappointment, and anger. His go-to is to tell me that I'm a bad mom and will also say that he wants me to die and go to heaven. I feel like I don't know the right way to deal with it. And it sounds like your three-year-old is mad. And while you know that he's only three, you probably also do not want your three-year-old to think it's okay to be disrespectful or use hurtful language towards you or anyone else. I want to commend you that I think it's great to resist the urge to want to take a strong stance because he isn't a teenager and he's really new at this and he needs to learn how to productively express his anger. You know, really what he's trying to say is he doesn't like whatever boundary you're setting and he doesn't know how else to manage it. So it may be two things. One, reminding yourself young children are not misbehaving on purpose. He's too little, so he's not being manipulative. People always say that and they often believe that but they don't really have the ability to manage their emotions and have more self-control than what they're physiologically even capable of. So that's what their job is right now, sort of learning to manage emotions and deal with life's frustrations and disappointments. And because it's hard work, we have to stay calm and remember that when they lash out like that by saying something mean or rude, it's often because they don't know how to sit with those hard feelings and they don't like rules. So another thing, but they need them, of course, because you need boundaries. So it could be that he feels too managed and he needs a little bit of help dealing with his reactions and frustrations by first reminding him that you feel for him, observing whatever it is that he's feeling. So let's say he says, you're a bad mom because you won't give him his blue cup. Then you can say, I think what you're trying to say is that you're really angry because you really want that blue cup. So instead of saying bad mom, just say, I'm angry mom. I'm angry right now. And help him learn how to criticize or talk about the feeling, but not the person. So he's not liking the rule that you're giving him, but he can still love you. And as you practice that, he'll understand that that's a much better way of getting his needs met because part of self-regulation is learning how to express your emotions so that you can get what you need. As far as the other comments, it could just be that, you know, saying something like dying and going to heaven three and a half years old, I'm sure anyone listening here that has a preschooler has been asked about death and heaven and what happens to people. And so another way of expressing anger is to throw out that concept. But again, it's not the way we understand it. It's not actually about that. So 
if you can stay calm to help him regulate, even though it's very difficult, you will be able to help him take a break and start to say it in a way that's more acceptable. If you feel like you're just, your blood is boiling and you cannot take it anymore, you have every right to just say, look, you're angry and that may be what you want to say, but those words you're using are unkind and I cannot allow that. And when you, mom, feel more calm, you can respond that you're feeling calm and ready to move on, but that when you hear mean language, you need to give yourself your own break. Okay, the last question. My three-year-old is always in such a sour mood. I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells. She'll wake up grumpy and start crying. She'll start crying over anything. We have a six-month-old baby also who's interrupted by her constant tantrums and crying. Do I put her in her room so she can figure it out and tell her that she's not allowed to cry? She just needs to be in her room? I want her to feel free to express herself, but her tantruming in front of all of us is getting old. Whew, I can feel, <laughs> I can feel your frustration. I want to remind you, I know it's hard, but you can't control a mood. You can control behaviors, but you can't control a mood. So I understand the grumpy, the sense of, you know, sour mood. One thing I would check on is how's her bedtime? Three-year-olds need to go to bed way earlier than we think. And sometimes when you have a new baby, um, you're thinking more about getting your six-month-old to sleep through the night. Um, and not realizing that your three-year-old is still really young and needs an early bedtime. So try to make sure that bedtime is early if you can. I would also encourage you to remember that having a six-month-old baby around is even harder than having a three-week-old baby around for a toddler because now they're lit up, they're doing adorable things, they might even be moving around and sitting up and eating solids and taking things. So it's a little bit hard to get attention when there's such an adorable thing around. So that might be another something to just pay attention to. Look, you can't change the fact that that's just a tough experience, but you could notice what things set your toddler off and try to figure out if perhaps she's having a tough time with this. Punishing emotions will never, ever get your child to not have them at best or worst, depending on how you look at it, she might hide them because she's afraid of your reaction, but she's certainly not going to stop having them. And she's too young to not be overwhelmed by the strength of her own emotions. So challenging as it is, the calmer you can remain in helping her navigate these emotions and the less of the negative attention that she might be getting for it, the better off you'll be. Remember, if she can get you to bring her to her room and cause a ruckus and get negative attention, that's all the more time you're spending with her instead of your six-month-old. I know this can be a really overwhelming time when you have a baby as well to take care of and a three-year-old is, you know, it's a lot of work. Just again, go back to your intention. What are you looking for? Try to have that moment. Take a breath and see if you can help her co-regulate with you, and you guys will get through this. Thank you for listening, and keep writing questions to me on DM at Raising Good Humans Podcasts, and let me know if you don't want me to use your name, by the way. I haven't used them yet, but I was thinking that it might be helpful. 
please subscribe, rate, and if you feel like it, leave a review letting me know what you're connecting with and what you like about the podcast. And I'll talk to you next Friday.